my name is Rutendo Nyamuda and welcome to another phenomenal episode of In My Twenties. In My Twenties. So on today's episode of the In My Twenties podcast, we do ask that you put all prior prejudices aside and listen with an open heart and an open mind as we engage in a conversation on xenophobia. So welcoming our guest onto the In My Twenties podcast and into the In My Twenties family, here she is. Hi, my name is Rebecca Spanda. I am a legal professional who specializes in the constitution. I am also a wine blogger and a wine enthusiast. I like to read and sleep on my weekends, but because I'm a liker of things, I often get launched and I go. Now on every episode of the In My Twenties podcast, my guests always come through with these incredible mind moments or gem moments. And this is just one of them. What xenophobia does is that it requires me to perform my humanity for people. I shouldn't have to wake up every day and prove I'm worth living. So the performance that is required to, uh, to, to, to get a person to understand that it's, 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 it's such a hard thing to have to do. The In My Twenties podcast is split up into three sections. In the first section, we get to hear a little bit more about Rebecca's career journey. In the second section, we dive into today's topic, which is all about xenophobia. And then rounding up all three sections is a conversation on the all-consuming 20s journey. So without further delay, let's get straight into it. Uh, So Rebecca, tell us a little bit about your career history How did you get to where you are and what are you currently doing? Okay, so I have a master's in international law, specializing in human rights and, um, yeah, human rights protection. I, during the last year of my master's, I got an internship at the Center for Constitutional Rights and I just never left. I am currently the legal officer there and my work basically involves promoting and protecting the constitution, mostly through legislative changes and calling out individuals who are responsible for some of the, the damage that we see in people's lives. Mm. But take us a little bit back. So like you are originally from Zim, if yes, I'm not mistaken. Yes, I am. I am born and raised. I was raised in Zim's second largest city, Wulawayo, Debele mm. Girl. Um, yeah, so I went to school at Girls College, best years of my life, like mm-hmm. today. I, I wish a lot of people hate their high school years. Yeah. I had the best time. Yeah. All girls school, just super supportive, really helped hone like my character mm-hmm. and, you know, what I was good at. I really enjoyed that. So obviously 2008 happened in Zim mm-hmm. and I'd actually planned to go to uni in 2009. Mm-hmm. And then I had my older brother who was in college and he, my parents were like, we can't afford to have both of you in university right mm-hmm. now. So I spent gap here mm-hmm. working for my my dad okay. saving my money and I paid for my own tuition for my first year all by myself oh wow yeah. you say 2008 happened in Zim yeah. uh, what exactly <laughs> happened not a lot of people no, are well versed right. in what happened in Zim so what happened in 2008 so in 2008 was like the biggest economic um dip in Zimbabwe um, currency changes. So the Zim dollar just lost its value. And a lot of changes happened in terms of like political unrest and the economy as well, which meant a lot of people lost their pensions and their mm-hmm. savings. Um, poor people definitely didn't have access to gen- like basic services. They couldn't buy food, um, access to medical services, a whole lot of things um, went bad. Mm. And as a result, I think it stunted the growth of a lot of individuals, especially my generation in terms of access to um, education and employment. 
And when I like contrast, compare and contrast, like with people who didn't manage to leave Zim, who are my age, our lives are in very different spaces. So I acknowledge my privilege very much in that I had the option of working for a bit and then going further into, you know, university. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of lives that pinpoint that year as the worst year because of what it meant mm-hmm. going forward. So yeah, so the economic changes and the political unrest that took place in Zim in 2008 are definitely a defining moment for a lot of lives. Mm. And definitely not just for people who are my age, but for my parents, They're, they lost their pension. So my, my dad is currently turning 60 and he's still working. He should be living his best life. Yeah. Just, you know, watching his grandkids grow mm. and holidaying. But him and my mother are running a business yeah. and consistently trying to find other, you know, ways to make money mm. you said lost lost your pension because the idea and understanding is like of having a pension or having a savings is yes. something that you've built up to how does one just lose, lose their pension so because of the, the the devaluation of the zim dollar banks literally zeroed accounts um pension funds um provident funds they literally zeroed mm. because the zim dollar wasn't worth anything anymore so they canceled it so if you had x amount of savings in either in like actual money in your bank account or in a pension fund somewhere it meant it meant it, it wasn't worth anything mm. so you couldn't tap into those funds because they didn't exist anymore literally um some banks sent like a lot of banks actually sent messages saying hi there's nothing in your account anymore we're starting from scratch Sure. So can you imagine somebody who has been living off their pension for X years suddenly going to the bank and being unable to withdraw that money? Mm. That person who doesn't have anybody remitting money to them from overseas, as a lot of people ended up doing, who relies solely on that money, they 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 had no access to it anymore. Yeah. And what I think what I really want people to understand is that it literally meant somebody had no food that night and for many nights going forward. Literally, mm. they couldn't pay their rates, so they got water cut off because the city council still wants its money. They couldn't pay for power, which already is a big thing in Zimbabwe. Power cuts are part of life. Yeah. But now, even the little that I I, I, I was getting, now I can't even afford to pay for that. Mm. You know, so day to day life really altered in that period, yeah. and nothing has really been the same since. So, Rebecca, to start off, how do you define the next four following terms? So, refugee, foreigners, expats, and migrants. Okay. So, the first one is refugees. So, legally, there's a system in place that identifies individuals as refugees. So, the fundamental requirement is that you must be fleeing from some form of persecution. Either it could be political, um, because of your origin, because of your sexual orientation. So international instruments and South African instruments stipulate what the criteria is. And if you meet that criteria, you apply through the asylum system in South Africa mm. and you either get accepted or not. And if you are accepted, you are called an, a refugee. Okay. And you have the papers that say you're a refugee. And being a refugee is literally just a title. In South Africa, it's incredible because a refugee has the same access to basic services that a South African has. Mm. You literally become part of the, the framework, part of the system. You can access medical, uh, safety and security, school, employment, because you are recognized as a South African on paper. So second definition is a foreigner. Okay, a foreigner across the board is a person who is not from the place that they either exist or occupy, mm-hmm. right? So if you don't come from South Africa, but you live in South Africa or you're visiting South Africa for whatever purpose, you are a foreigner. But we also know that connotations and perceptions are even more important. So the paper that says foreigner doesn't mean as much as how I'm perceived as a foreigner. Mm. So third one is expat. 
I hate that word. <laughs> I hate I hate it like with the core of my my being. I hate it. Yeah. Because expats are treated like special foreigners. Yes. They are allowed to create communities. Mm, yeah. So you're not from a country, but you have been able to create a community of people who look like you, sound like you, share history, um, share experiences with you. So you yeah. can find comfort in a place where you ideally you shouldn't. Mm. So an expats could mean any but somebody who's been there for two months to somebody who's been there for twenty years. Okay. So it's a very it's an interesting idea to me to feel safe in a, in a country that isn't yours or safer mm. than people from a country in a country that isn't yours, which is often the case. Mm. If you look at the South African communities in, for example, Kenya, mm-hmm. in um, Uganda, in Namibia, it's very comfortable. Yes. But then that also speaks to privilege. The color of your skin is important because yeah. expats aren't in the South African context are really black people, mm. really people of color. And then fourth one is a migrant. A migrant, um, okay. In international law, we speak of migrants as people who leave their place of origin, not necessarily country, but mm-hmm. place of origin, to go and seek better pastures, often like economic. Mm. So we speak of economic migrants. Mm. That's the prefix. People who, for whatever reason, cannot find or sustain their livelihoods where they come from, so they leave to another place to attempt mm. to better their economic situation. Mm-hmm. So in the international law space, we also talk about migrants who are economic, who cross borders. Mm. So you can say a refugee, right? And people sometimes interchange refugee and migrant, but they're not the same thing. Okay. A refugee is fleeing persecution. An economic migrant is literally seeking money Mm. and the security that money affords. Okay. So the reason I I asked specifically and started off asking what those terms and definitions meant is because of something you said, connotations. Yeah. The way you inform them or the way you speak about migrants, refugees, expats, foreigners, um, in various contexts, what frustrates me most about the way it's used in South Africa is the context and the connotations to it. Mm-hmm. So we talk about expats when we talk about people who, who are white. Mm-hmm. We talk about white people. We talk about Europeans. We yes. talk about people from the U.S. Yes. Every single one of the other three, refugees, a migrant, um, or a foreigner, um, refers to a person of color, Absolutely. refers to a black person, yeah. refers to another African. And that for me has always been uncomfortable. It's like, why can't you just because it also gives you a mindset. It's like, oh, an expat is coming to, it's like that superiority mindset Absolutely. where there's an inferiority or a lesser um, kind of connotation placed on refugee, migrant or um, foreigner. Absolutely. And when you speak of expats versus the other groups, mm. there's definitely the layer of colorism, mm. definitely the layer of Eurocentrism. There's the layer of money, Right. Because of the systemic and systematic exclusion of people of color across the world, Mm. you have certain groups of people who will always have access or be given access based purely on the color of their skin. Mm. And you can't have the conversation about expat versus others without acknowledging the legacy of colonialism and imperialism across the world. Mm. So even today, we are living in a country that is not so far away from apartheid and the impact of it. The remnants are still flowing through people's lives Mm. and language that was used in apartheid and how we identify certain groups of people is still very, very prevalent. Mm. So expats are treated differently and it's primarily because of the color of their skin. Mm. That's what it is. And we can color, we can sugarcoat it and be like, no, but no. But the truth is that when you strip away all the layers, 
it's definitely about the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. And Africans have been viewed as being dirty, as, as, as bringing disease, as, um, hoarding resources, mm. as, as competition. Yes. So a black South African will not see a white South Af- a white foreigner as competition, mm. but they will see a black foreigner as competition. And it's, it's so baffling because then it means that you think all black people's stories are the same. And that's dangerous because, for example, myself, I have privilege that perhaps a white person from Europe has. The competition on this, it's not there. It's not the same, Mm -hmm. right? But the moment I state that I'm Zimbabwean, it's like, hold up. The reception changes. Yes. You know, but you don't know what I had to go through to get here. It's a whole, it's a whole different thing. People afford patience and an ear to white foreigners Mm. that they have none to give to people of color. So that's so true. And fighting looks different now. It it looks like state capture. It looks like siphoning of funds. It looks like exclusion from people, excluding people from systems of power, of access. So migration is not a new concept. And then if you think about in the South African context as well, during apartheid, the the migration of the armed wings of political parties to different parts of Africa for training, for safety and security during exile, all those conversations need to be had Mm -hmm. because you have to understand that it's not a, it's not a tit for tat situation per se, but understanding history makes you more empathetic empathetic Mm -hmm. (laughs) and understanding of what lived experiences are and what they mean for people. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of like conversation about how, these people are coming into our country to take our things. But look, look before, look beyond that and understand that those countries harbored your people mm. in the most traumatic time in your history. And I think when you understand and you allow yourself to, to interrogate who told you that foreigners are, are bad, mm. then you can kind of start developing a different understanding of migration and foreigners and people who are here, not because they want to be, but because life has dealt them a certain card. Yeah, a lot of people do think the reason why people from different African countries are in South Africa is because they're they're just coming. They're coming to take their jobs or coming to take their resources or whatever it is. But what you've just painted now is the reasons why people are here. Yeah. Um, even coming back to some of those definitions, you're... you're you're running away from either war. Mm. You're running away from famine. famine. You're running away from crime, violence in your own. Yes. Can you imagine living in your household and having a consistent uh, gunfights and violence outside your house? You're trying to protect your family. That is so interesting. I'm not in the areas or the places where xenophobic attacks are high, but as a Zimbabwean-born woman living in South Africa, I'm affected because I'm like, those are my people, whether it's Zimbabwean or Zambian or Nigerian, or doesn't matter where you're from. The minute I hear foreigners were attacked, foreigners have been burned. Absolutely. I get so emotional and so angry because I'm like, that could have been me. That could have been my family. You know, I, I, I get very frustrated because what xenophobia does is that it requires me to perform my humanity for people. I shouldn't have to wake up every day and prove I'm worth living. Sure. So the performance that is required to, uh, to, to, to get a person to understand that it's, 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 it's such a hard thing to have to do. Mm. And then to think about the fact that someone else didn't even have the opportunity to perform their humanity and their life was taken anyway. So 
yeah, it's mm-hmm. a very, it's, 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 it's heartbreaking mm. because sometimes you don't even know whose life was taken and it could be a relative. Yeah. You could hear months later or weeks later, so, oh, so-and-so was involved. It's difficult, mm, mm. you know? How do you define xenophobia? Oh, okay. So for me, I mean, the, the standard definition is the fear of foreigners, humans. But, um, so it's not just the fear or the hatred. It's the systematic exclusion of people because of where they come from, which is a constitutional ground. You cannot discriminate unfairly against a person based on their place of origin. So you have this legislation that is so mindful of the fact that migration is a thing and that South Africa is a melting pot of people from different places. So it envisages a place where these people can come in and be accommodated and integrated. But on the ground, because we don't teach our, our children in schools or educate people about what it means to be a foreigner, what foreigners symbolize, that they're just people. Like there's definitely a disconnect because people just hear the word foreigner and it's a trigger word. So you don't understand that because someone or something is foreign, it's not a threat. Mm-hmm. So xenophobia for me is bigger than just about the fear or hatred. It's about how it manifests itself. We've, we see a lot of xenophobic attacks happening in more lower income areas yeah. as opposed to middle class and upper income areas or higher earning areas. Why is that? One, I think because we have the luxury of using this kind of English to eloquently address our problems. Because we, we, we have this quote unquote intelligence. Mm. It's a luxury to sit in the burbs or in the city and have a conversation about what xenophobia means. Mm. When I'm living in squalor and I am hungry and I don't have a job and my options are limited if they exist at all. Mm. And then I see the slight, like what you said earlier, that I perceive that person who's not from here to be doing better than me. And because my language is violence, yeah, that's it. That's the end of the conversation. They don't. They don't have the language to say let's let's meet in the town in the city hall and let's have a chat about theories of xenophobia and theories of migration. They don't have that luxury. Mm. They are hungry right now. Mm. They don't have food right now. But you are driving your car through my neighborhood to go live in the house that may be an RDP house that I think I have a right to. So inequality definitely pushes people to respond violently because they don't feel like they have options. Mm. And then somebody who is perceived as a threat looks more secure, looks more comfortable. I'm going to need your reaction with the language that I know mm. to address it. It's not going to solve anything for me because if I kill that person from... Mozambique. Yeah. I'm not going to be hiding in their position immediately. Mm. That's, not, that's not what it means. Yeah. So in your work, in your line of work, working um, on a lot of human rights law and in that space, how do, how do we fix this? Because obviously, like you're saying, we can have this conversation here. We can have it on a podcast and we'll probably be speaking to the converted yes, anyway. Absolutely. So the people who, they're just like, yeah, yeah, they'll agree with everything. How do we get these kinds of conversations and how do we inspire these conversations in the lower income areas where they should be having the conversations or where we should have leadership, not just talking in newspapers or in interviews of how we need to stand together and fight against xenophobia, but actually doing something that we're implementing in those areas and in those communities. So how do we, how do we get these conversations into the places where, we're, where they need to be? I think one thing you touched on that's really fundamental is leadership. So this kind of conversation has to trickle from the top down. Mm. And when you don't have political will to see change, it's not going to happen. Right. So for example, and I, and I, I have a very, like, he's a thorn in my side. So Herman Mashaba, for example, who consistently spews xenophobic vitriol mm. in the newspapers, in at rallies, consistently uses a language of hatred 
against people who are not South African. He has access to so many ears and that influence and people don't understand how, how, how strong that influence is. When you see your political leader feeling a certain way, you're going to co-opt that feeling and you're going to act on it. Herman is done when he puts the microphone down and he goes back to his luxurious house after driving in his air-conditioned car. He's fine. But the people who he leaves with that unrest mm. will go into their communities and do what they do, right? So definitely leadership has to inculcate a spirit of Ubuntu in people to allow the next step, which I think is the most important, community mobilization. I really, and I'm a legal person, and I, for the longest time, really believed in how the law changes lives until I realized that it's a piece of paper, the people who have to live that law are human beings who are part of communities, mm. who go to church, who, who are at schools, all of those things, right? And communities are the stronghold of any thinking. So if your preacher is xenophobic, that church becomes xenophobic. Mm. That church is individuals who go into their neighborhoods and becomes xenophobic and it, it, it spirals out of control. So definitely community mobilization, having conversations. In and among the gender-based violence stories that have surfaced, one of the big things was the xenophobic attacks. Yeah. What were your feelings and emotions when the, the news of the xenophobic attacks had come up again uh, these last couple of weeks? I have family in Joburg, so the first, my first instinct was to call the, my loved ones and say, hey, are you okay? This is what's happening. Don't go outside. Mm. Right? My first instinct. The second is how you, you, you noted a lack of police presence as that crowd moved through the city, right? And it's, it's understanding or the perception that because the lives that were at risk were not South African lives, they didn't matter. That hurt. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the constitution and the, you know, the police policy and the police service act don't say you must protect only citizens. It says occupants, people who live here, you know, so definitely knowing that even the systems and the institutions of power don't care mm. was scary. Right. And then I think follow up to that was how, for example, the police minister refused to identify it as xenophobic violence. He said criminality. He even said it's not xenophobia. Again, leadership doesn't want to call the thing the thing. And if you can't call the thing the thing, how do you address the thing? Mm. If I if I say this is a cough, then I can give you medicine for the cough. But if I can't identify what it is, how am I going to address it? Mm. So this is a, a, a kind of like reluctance to, to, to address a problem that is clearly a problem because the victims are not South African. And then it turns out that the victims were South African. Yeah, they said the, the large percentage yes. of those who were killed were South African. And then suddenly it's like, oh my God, let's have a press conference. Mm. You know? And that was such a powerful moment for me because it shows and proves to that there's no one face of a foreigner. There's no one face of a black person or a white. Like, you can't, there's no barcode on my forehead that says, I'm not from here. And when you see now that the harm was caused to their own, yeah. suddenly there's action. Mm. How do you feel right now? being a black female Zimbabwean living in South Africa right now? All those women in me are tired. I'm tired. I will be honest and say that up until Uine, I wasn't afraid to be black female living where I live because I live in Clement. That That's my post office. I wasn't as afraid because you get... Privilege buys you certain protection, Right by the, the spaces you occupy and people you interact with. But I could have been winning. So now I'm afraid. So definitely there's a layer of fear that 
something that could happen to me. And because I'm not South African, would I be reported the same way? Would people care as much? I'm not young or as pretty. Would the media care as much? Do my friends have the same resources? Do they care about me enough to report my, my, my absence? So it's definitely something that I've asked myself. And then I think of poorer black Zimbabwean women. She can go missing any day and nobody will know. So I'm, I'm scared. I'm concerned. And like you said, each of those layers makes the experience even harder because of how the response would be if something happened to me. So there is a question I want to ask you. You said you are Zimbabwean. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about Robert Mugabe's death? Personally, I am Zimbabwean. I am a black woman. I am Debele. Those layers all inform how I feel about Robert Mugabe and is that I don't. And in my culture, we don't speak up ill about the dead. Mm-hmm. But I, could, I couldn't care less. If anything, it's unfair because he didn't get to answer for all the atrocities that he enabled and committed, right? And when people speak about Robert Mugabe and say, oh, his first few years, his first few years was when the Kukuraundi happened. I have family members that I never got to know. Mm. My father has traumatic stories. My grandfather was beaten within, to, like, within an inch of his life and he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. So I don't have a period of Robert Mugabe that makes me happy. Mm. That makes me long for those days. And definitely when I was young, I didn't understand because my political activism is something that, you know, I started my early 20s. Mm. So for me, because of the harm directly to my family, directly to my people and my heritage, the harm to my generation. There's a whole generation of, of, of Zimbabwean people who, who don't know what their homes look like because they're scattered across the world because of economic policy, because of systematic exclusion, because of looting on the one of the largest scales known in history. I don't know if I have... This is the most time I've actually afforded to his passing. So some like people do have mixed feelings. I, my feelings are not mixed. They're very clear. I couldn't care less. How would you summarize your 20s journey thus far? My 20s journey has been epic Mm -hmm. in the sense that it has all the good ingredients for like a great series on Netflix. (laughs) It's been fun. It's been adventurous. It's been sad. It's, it's required a lot of me, Mm. but ultimately it's, it's been the best ride of my life and that I've become who I am because of my twenties. Okay. Like, wow. I I love what you said about it being like a TV series. Totally. Like one of those like seven seasons long series. It's great. Everything that you want, heartbreak, poor life decisions, all of it, it's there. (laughs) Don't you feel like there've been so many plot twists in the twenties that you never saw coming (sighs) with people, with places, with jobs. It's just like, I didn't know that was going to happen. Okay, yeah. Can we stop now? I'm ready. I'm, I'm done with surprises now. Can we just like, mm. can we, can we, can we level out? <laughs> can we level out now? Can we, you know, <laughs> definitely. I mean, like I don't have the same friends mm. I had when I was in my early twenties. Mm-hmm. I'm not in love with the same person I was, you know, with in my early twenties. Yeah. Even like three years ago, I, I, I definitely was not who I am today. Mm. I love myself differently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, have you ever experienced the quarter life crisis? I'm in the middle of it. Oh, okay. Hit me. What is your quarter life crisis? What are you currently going through? So it's definitely about, definitely 
about being foreign. Mm-hmm. So my permit is about to expire. Okay. And I don't know what I want to do. Okay. And I am a type A high achiever person, always has a plan. Okay. And my whole life has been curated either by my parents or by me, like definitely had plans. And suddenly I don't know. And it's, it's about, do I feel safe here? It's about if I stay, what will I do? Mm-hmm. When one, and I'm also kind of wanting to go back to school, but I can't afford it. Mm-hmm. How do I get back to that? Can I afford a job shift? People don't want me because of my passport. There's so many things happening that I'm so uncertain about, particularly when like next year hits, I don't know where I am. Mm-hmm. So I, I know I am loved which I think is the most important thing. I've got a really great support system. My friends, my boyfriend, my family. I know I I feel very secure in my relationships, Mm. but in my life's trajectory, I I have no idea what's going to happen. Ask me next year in June who I am and I I might have a better answer. I don't know. Wow. So my final question is you had quite a journey, like even in your twenties, even listening to your story, such a unique story. Um, such a story of hope though. And I think that's the importance is although, and despite everything that you've been through, everything that, and even, and, and it, it just keeps coming back to me when you said you're privileged in a different way or speaking of your privilege or the kind of privilege, because they're people who, again, like we said, we're probably speaking to people who understand this and who, you know, listen and be very intellectual about this conversation. Um, but I kind of wanted to know, like, what advice do you have for people specifically who maybe have taken a similar journey to you? So what advice do you have for people who are other Africans who have moved to South Africa, who are living in South Africa right now, who are maybe going through what you are going through? Wow. I don't know. Hey, okay. I think generally like the one piece of advice I would give somebody in a similar situation is say no often in the sense that you you sometimes feel like your time is running out because of your permit or whatever and you want to say yes to everything and do more things and fill your life before you have this piece of your your history taken away from you or whatever and I made a lot of poor life decisions because of the anxiety of having to leave you know and the repercussions I'm still dealing with some of them so definitely being a foreigner means that you're living on borrowed time sometimes and you try to fill that borrowed time with as many good memories, as many laughs, as many collectibles as possible. And and, and you don't have to. Mm. Your life is, is rich already that you've left where you came from. You were brave enough to come and exist in a place that may not want you. You've made human connections. You've gotten qualifications. You've, you've traveled. There are already so many things that you've accomplished. You don't have to say yes to everything. And final, final piece of advice is just to people in their 20s in general. Be honest. As soon as I started being honest with myself, I think, like mid-20s, like 25, 26, like, like brutally truthful about my lack of accountability, about how I treated people in my life, about how much work I didn't put into my... Like, just being honest with yourself inculcates a culture of being honest with other people. Mm. And honesty really removes this layer of having to remember lies, you know? Mm. It, it means that you have people in your life who authentically want to be there because mm. you've been honest about who you are to them. And then they choose you because they choose you because you are you. Stop wearing armor for people who, who, who don't matter. So be honest with yourself. If you don't like a guy's attention, say you don't like it. 
if you don't want to drink that day, don't drink. If you don't want to do something, don't do it. If you feel a certain way, say it. Mm -hmm. Like, honesty just makes the way you travel through your life and through the lives of other people a beautiful experience. Because you're the one person they can always be certain about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for coming onto the In My Twenties podcast and sharing your personal journey and personal experience of being a woman from another African country, from Zimbabwe, living in South Africa, and how the xenophobic attacks have affected you and your viewpoints on xenophobia. I hope this conversation will allow us to engage in other conversations where we're starting to come up with solutions so we can be part of the solution and not observe this as just a problem. This was such an enlightening and engaging episode. So thank you for that. So we'll catch you all same time, same place, right here on In My Twenties.